Welcome to another episode of Papa PhD. This week I'm on vacation and I decided to share with you one of the most value-packed episodes of season two of the show. My conversation with Mark Hirschberg, author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Like I said, this conversation is jam-packed with information with some gold nuggets for you to take home, so be sure to have pen and paper before you hit play. Negotiations are a skill that you should learn. So imagine the following scenario. You get a job outside of academia, you take your first industry job, maybe you're 30 years old. Let's say they offer you $80,000 and you negotiate to $81,000. Not a massive lift, right? We can all imagine doing that. If you do nothing else, you just sit in that job the rest of your career, you spend another 35 years working at this one job, you just made $35,000. One negotiation, tiny lift, $35,000. Now imagine that you don't just sit in one job, right? You, of course, take other jobs, you get promotions, you negotiate those. Again, you negotiate for maybe just a few thousand more. These aren't heavy lifts. You're not some world-class negotiator. You're just doing a little better. You can literally add tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars to your lifetime income. Welcome to this week's episode of Papa PhD. Today with me, I have Mark Hirschberg. Mark is the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. From tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web to creating marketplaces and new authentication systems, Mark has spent his career launching and developing new ventures as at startups and Fortune 500s and in academia. He helped to start the Undergraduate Practice Opportunities Program, dubbed MIT's Career Success Accelerator, where he teaches annually. At MIT, he received a bachelor's in physics, a bachelor's in electrical engineering and computer science, and a master's in engineering in electrical engineering and computer science too, focusing in cryptography. At Harvard Business School, Mark helped create a platform used to teach finance at prominent business schools, and he also works with many nonprofits, including Techie Youth and Plant a Million Corals. He was one of the top-ranked ballroom dancers in the country and now lives in New York City. Welcome to Papa PhD, Mark. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really happy to have you here. Uh, I always uh, love having uh, on the show people who have spent an uh, inordinate amount of time thinking about this question of career transitions and about uh, you know how to find your path in in a, in a in a world which can be confusing uh which you know you you may not have the exact the right cues or you may not you know have a model in your family to follow and you may be the first to do to do these things such as, as a phd and then you know it, it, having someone who has done all the work and then you know wrote, written a book on on something like this is always a pleasure for me uh, here on the show I'm glad to be here and hopefully can share some of that knowledge with your audience. Yeah. Well, uh that's why we're here and uh, I'm uh, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you, but let's start uh, at the beginning. Uh, I already talked a little bit about your academic journey. Um but maybe you if you can talk a little bit more about yourself and uh, about how you came to this um to thinking about this question of of figuring out your career and to and to eventually do it think about it enough to uh, to write the career to the career toolkit yeah i came out of mit in the 90s with a couple of degrees i left with my graduate degree masters and a phd and started as a software developer and i really didn't have a lot of great direction at that point i thought i wanted to be a physicist for various reasons i i shifted from that and went mm. to science and just kind of found a job i wasn't excited about i just it was there seemed like the best of the worst options mm -hmm. and i was wondering and it wasn't until at this point the company i was at had a falling out between the founders and they split in two and the cto who i reported to said well i'm leaving to form a new company a uh, company why don't you come with me And the existing founders said, oh, you know, we know he's leaving. We know he's taking people, but we want you to stay. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, I realized I had a decision to make. Okay, well, how do I figure out? Do 
do I stay or do I go? <laughs> I need to figure out how to evaluate this. I started to think about what's important, where am I going? And then realized I had more than two options because as a dot-com era, lots of people were hiring software developers. Of course. <laughs> and so I had to create a framework, right? All of us, when we're, we're looking at our graduate studies, we don't just say, oh, I wonder if this is true, right? We say, well, what exactly am I trying to prove or understand? What's my thesis? And then what is the approach to figure this out? Mm-hmm. And that's basically what I did with my career. I thought about where am I trying to go, right? What's that end goal? And then how do I figure out which of these paths is going to take me there? Mm-hmm. And so there's a more concrete way of thinking that started to direct my career. And then a little further down the road, when I was interviewing people, and I'd ask them a technical question, it might have been software, it might have been in accounting and marketing, whatever their field, and they'd give me an answer, and okay, right, they have their degree, good, they actually paid attention <laughs> in class. But then I would ask a question, what makes someone a good teammate? What are the communication issues you might face in this role? And I would get blank stares. Mm-hmm. Because we don't teach that, in high school, in undergrad, in graduate school, we don't teach it, but this is so important to what we do. And I began to recognize there were other skills we needed that we were never taught. And around the same time, uh, MIT had gotten a grant to start a program along the same vein. I got connected to the guy who was starting it. I said, look, I've been focusing on this for the past two years at the company that uh, I've been hiring for and, and the team I've been managing. Can I help? I said, mm-hmm. yes, please. So I helped develop some of that class. And then he said, you know what? We have all these great professors, but they're not in the field. And I have a tremendous respect for, for my, uh, the professors I work with at MIT, mm-hmm. but they don't spend as much time as practitioners. So we brought in, he asked me to come help teach and brought in other people like me who can bring in a perspective from the field. Okay. And so since then, I've now had one foot in, in industry and one foot in academia. Mm-hmm. And and so, uh, can you just uh, talk a, l- a little bit about this? You know, your foot in industry, what it looks like. You know, coming out of of, uh, of your masters, you had this. You were in this company. It split. What did it develop into in terms of of career uh, specifically? Let's say. So at that point, I realized I knew I wanted to shift into management, and the reason, okay. is, as much as I love engineering, and I still to some level love playing with Legos. But there's a reason I don't play with Legos every day. It's fun to do once in a while, but Legos are a very fixed type of problem, right? Mm -hmm. There is a small solution space in Legos compared to other types of activities and social engagement. Likewise, the problems that I would face as an engineer, as an individual contributor, were relatively constrained and fixed compared to the challenges I would face in management. It was a wider problem space, Mm -hmm. which I found interesting. So I knew I wanted to move in that direction. And I knew long-term I wanted to be a CTO, a chief technology officer. I also understood that being the chief technology officer doesn't just mean I am the best programmer. In fact, we're terrible programmers. I don't write code (laughs) anymore. I'm pretty rusty. But I knew, and certainly as you move up and become a director of engineering, okay, I did need to be a good programmer. But I also needed to understand how to hire people, how to communicate with people in other departments, how to budget how to strategize, how to do partnership deals. These were not skills I learned in my undergraduate computer science program. So what did I need to do to develop? And I created a development plan that included picking certain jobs that would advance me along that path and help me develop. And so that's how I chose what would be the appropriate next job. What's going to get me to where I want to go in the future? Mm. That's really, really interesting because one of the things that can block us and i'm I'm thinking of myself uh, you know when i was in the phd we're very um, you know maybe the the way i was thinking was very i was thinking of one track i need to find the the path the track the job and it feels like the way you you what what you described is more uh and it kind of it might sound weird, but shoot first, which means get get this first job, which is maybe not exactly what you want, and then aim after. And then with the years, you kind of narrow, you, you kind of made it more laser, you know, laser focused what you wanted, and and you 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 like you said, you you started cho- choosing different opportunities that that were teaching you the skills to that brought you to the position that you kind of 
that was let's say your dream job in a way and because i think the fact of this 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 will of finding the right job may block you from finding even the first job right certainly we often say in industry perfect is the enemy of the good now i i don't think my strategy was great in fact probably i i definitely had a job first out of college mm-hmm. where honestly i probably wasted a year of my life because i wasn't <laughs> okay. directed and i didn't pick the best opportunity for me mm-hmm. but it's important to to recognize like it's not about perfection the way i think about it, start with your long term goal where you want to be 10 20 years down the road and it may be a title for you it might just be a concept of what you want to be doing mm-hmm. it could be fuzzy it could even be two or three things that's okay but then start to back out from there to get there what do you need to do so i knew i need some of these other skills okay. right you might say oh i want to be you know this tenured professor okay well if you're in stem that means probably you have good access to research grants so somewhere along the way you better know how to get money mm-hmm. right whether it's by writing grants building up connections with industry if you want to run that that you know senior uh, person in the lab you need the skill beyond just you're a great researcher. So mm-hmm. what can you do in your next few jobs to develop those skills? I knew for example, I needed to get better at marketing. So I chose jobs. I actually worked as a CTO at marketing companies where there was some almost learning by osmosis. I, mean, mm-hmm. I also read marketing books, I took some online marketing classes, but also being in that environment, being exposed to marketing issues, how we think about marketing products help me understand marketing and i chose that job not because i was super excited about marketing for the rest of my life but because it would help train me and get me further in what i did want to do and marketing was a component of it mm-hmm. it it totally makes sense now the, there can be another situation too which is and i think it's it might be actually fairly frequent uh of getting to let's say the last year of your phd and and just noticing, oh, I didn't spend one minute thinking of anything else but tenure, and it may not be materializing. Uh, can you, you know, when did you, or maybe let's say, based on on your on your researches and on on your work, when would you advise uh, people who are in this position of uh, you know being in a in a graduate program? And not being sure, you know, what the future has has in store for them. When is the right time to start thinking about these things and start, like you were saying, start building this this um, this system and this framework for preparing the transition? So the right time is honestly a couple of years before whenever you have to make a decision. But if you haven't, if you're saying I have to make the decision now, well, the right time is now. Mm-hmm. It's only fair to start earlier. And this is for a few reasons. So one is, these are not decisions you have to make by yourself. Yes, it's ultimately your career. You have to be responsible and you make that final decision, but you're not doing it in a vacuum. Get input from other people. Talk to other faculty members. Talk to other PhD students. Talk to friends in industry. Talk to lots of different people and get input and listen to what do they like about their job? What don't they like about their job? What things would... Do they wish they knew when they first started down this path? Mm-hmm. One thing I don't think I appreciated consciously was that the nature of some of the work I was looking to do would have been fairly narrow and isolating. So in, in physics, if I had gone into to research, I'd be in a very focused, specialized field, and I would have been focused on some very narrow problems, maybe plasma physics, maybe uh, astrophysics, and you hang around with a bunch of other people in astrophysics or whatever the field is. <laughs> And that's it. And I mentioned earlier, I realized I want to go from engineering problems to a more diverse set of managerial problems, which you're less likely to get in that field. Now, I kind of had some maybe instinct, but it wasn't very conscious. If I had gone out and spoken to people, famously, when you talk to lawyers, everyone sees lawyers on TV, right? We see that dramatic courtroom scene and someone suddenly blurts out the truth and "Ah, we got them. (laughs) Yeah. Talk to any lawyer and they're going to say, absolutely not. In <laughs> fact, most of law, you're never in a courtroom. Many lawyers never set foot in a courtroom. And you're sitting in office by yourself, poring over law books, reading now online, case law, redlining documents. Mm-hmm. That's what a lawyer means. And lots of people, they see on TV like, oh, I want to do that. 
but they don't realize this is what the job really is. So it's only by talking to people that we start to understand and get a better perspective. And we start to hear what might sound interesting or might not. At the same time, whatever path we go down, it's important that we build up a network. And networks, networking is not, I went to a pub night last night, I collected six business cards, yay, I've networked. (laughs) Networking is about building relationships. It's not about collecting cards. Mm -hmm. Building relationships, as we know, takes time. So you really want to start now, not for tomorrow, but for down the road to have that network ready for you. It's uh, I, I really love that you say that because often, and I come from from STEM. Uh, my my PhD is in cell biology, and often uh, when you are doing research in that domain, you know you you're on ResearchGate or something like that. And I tell people go on LinkedIn, start talking with people on LinkedIn. Do you have an opinion on that? Uh, and also, do you have other strategies than LinkedIn? I don't know. Uh, that's the that's my go to because it really works for me. But uh, I wonder if you have advice for people who maybe even are a little bit uh, introverted. I don't know to because it's not that complicated on a platform like that to say hi. Uh, I do I, I do this research. research. I'm uh, uh, I'm inspired by your you know your your career journey. I'd love to chat. Is that something that that you uh, you would advise people to do? Absolutely, and I'm introverted as well. I am naturally an introvert. Here's the thing. We think about that stereotype of a networker who does go to the conference and smoozes everyone and gets all the cards. Yeah, that's not networking. I mean, it's one way to do it, but that's not the only way. If you've ever had a friend, you know how to network. (laughs) I believe everyone here has had at least one friend. It is just building a relationship. Now, it doesn't mean everyone in your network is your personal friend, right? There's some people who are my friends and they're in my network. There are some people who are just business contacts. We don't hang out on weekends, but you know we can call each other, reach out, and we have a relationship. So mm-hmm. don't think about, I have to go to a room, and I have to go and meet lots of people, and it's overwhelming. Think of it one-on-one. I need to meet this person, chat, develop a relationship over time, and that's less overwhelming than the room. Mm-hmm. Now, in figuring out where do you find these people, it is anywhere. So you can start with your university. And start, obviously, with people in your department. You can talk to people in neighboring departments. You can talk to people in other departments. Yes, if you're you know, studying physics, okay, talk to people in chemistry. That's kind of nearby, maybe biology. <laughs> talk to people in history and English. Talk about their paths. And sure, they might not be talking about how to run a lab because the nature of that work is different. But mm-hmm. people in those areas still think about getting tenure right? And what those paths look like and putting together a tenure package, right? It's the same no matter what field you're in. Mm. They even think about doing outside work versus staying in academia or what a path outside might be, why they might want to stay in academia or leave. And that could apply to you as well. So we can go to our university. We can go to our alumni network. This is an underutilized resource from your undergrad, graduate school, where you are currently. You have this massive alumni network. And the thing is that we can reach out to people on LinkedIn. Now, academics are very open and giving, right? We're very much, oh, fellow academic. Yeah, I'll share my research paper. Happy to chat because mm-hmm. it's all about sharing ideas. Reaching out to strangers on the internet who don't have that mindset, you might not get as much of a response. Mm-hmm. But we can reach out with people. We still have this tribal mentality. And when we say, oh, hi, I went to the same school you did, right? We have that connection. We're in the same tribe. Yeah. You're much likely to, much more likely to get a response. So you can you can reach out to those groups. You can also go whatever city or town you're in. There are online community groups, and sorry, there's physical community groups. There's also online community groups. More so of those these days. As these days, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so there's lots of resources. Even think of family friends of yours, because maybe your cousin has a friend who's in the same field or a nearby field. And you had no idea, right? But by talking to your cousin and finding out, oh, here's someone interesting to talk to. So really take a diverse and open mind towards who you can speak with because it really can be most anyone. No, for sure. And uh, if you're especially introverted, and I I also put myself in that club, not not extremely, but I'm on the introverted side of things, um, you may want to reach out to your colleagues and and say, hey, uh, 
do you want to organize a career seminar and we'll invite people and and that that way you won't be you won't have that stress of, of maybe uh, bugging someone because some so often you feel people can feel like that oh but i'm going to be uh, annoying the person if you organize something and you bring someone on a zoom call to share their path they'll be happy to do it and and you can you can take advantage of that as a group too i i think it's a it's a, it's an opportunity To. This is this is one of the real secrets of networking. My friend Olivia Fox Caban, she wrote a great book called The Charisma Myth. Mm -hmm. Turns out charisma is a skill that you can learn, just like accounting or baseball or anything else. Mm -hmm. She has uh, she's taught us that one of the great ways to build your network is to be on effectively the membership or awards committee. Okay, And what does this mean? Practically speaking, it's what you just said. Imagine there are these people I really want to reach out to, but uh, you know they seem they seem impressive. I'm a little intimidated. Imagine you organize an event and you say, "Hi, I think you are so special, so impressive. I would love to have you at the event. I'd love to have you speak to people." So first, you've now had a good reason to reach out, not a mm -hmm. "give me help." It's yeah. <laughs> I want to give you something valuable to you, putting you up on the pedestal. You can also, it's very normal to say, hey, you know, just want to chat ahead of time, get to know a little more about you, what we can speak about. And you can build a personal relationship with this person as well as get advice in the event. It can be multiple people. You are also now the organizer. Everyone looks at you and says, oh, you're the person who's connected. You're the organizer. Everyone knows who you are. They might even just say hi before or after the event. People come to you when you organize the event. So it's a great strategy for really building out your network. Well, uh, I'm, I'm glad. Can you, can you just share again the, the name of the book and the author that you just mentioned? The Charisma Myth by Olivia Fox Caban, C-A-B-A-N-E. All right. I'll, I'll see if I put that to, uh, on, the, on the, the show notes. One other thing, when you're, when you're in grad school uh, and, and when you're, you, you're, well, when you finish grad school and you, you know, tenure or, Uh, academia doesn't happen for you or you decide it's not for you you kind of you kind of uh, switch into this other world that has another culture another language uh, it can be industry if you come from stem uh, you, you know it can take different forms um, and maybe you can bring some examples from from the humanities but one of the the the, the issues that i i think gives some anxiety to people and and that may Yeah, that, that may be stumbling blocks for them to getting that first job is uh, kind of switching. You have this mindset and this language that which is the academic language and the the academic frame of mind. And when you move into the the, the job market, the people who you're going to talk with, they speak a different language. They the they come from a different culture. Do you have um, any? Um, advice on on how to prepare for that and you know i'm thinking of the interview process i think maybe just we can focus on that because it's kind of the moment where it all happens right when you have to give that impression you have to answer those questions and you know make them feel that you're going to be a good uh, team member and it can be challenging for people coming straight out let's say of a phd do you do you have any insights on 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 that and, and any tools or strategies to follow to to make it easier and, and to guarantee a little bit more of, of success? Although guaranteeing is a, a bit of a strong word. I'm going to share a story. Uh, this is one I, I have in the book. Now, my background, as you mentioned, it, it's very STEM. It's very quantitative. Mm -hmm. And so I was trained to think of the world as a physicist or an engineer is trained. So mm -hmm. boundary conditions and constraints and systems of equations. And this is how I think about the world. No matter what problem I'm facing, I might not actually formally write out what are, what's the system of equations, but that's kind of how I look at things, mm -hmm. right? And how do, we, how do we solve a solution within these constraints? So many years ago, when I was working at Harvard Business School, I was driving this very old, beat-up car. It was probably worth about $1,000, if I'm being generous. <laughs> Now, it had been stolen, so I always locked the doors. I put a car club on. That's a a device you put over the wheel. The steering wheel, yeah. yeah. To lock it. And one of the professors, he's a finance professor, and we were in my car one day, and he you know, saw me like, you know, use the club. He said, why are you doing this? This car is so beat up and old. You're wasting <laughs> your time. I said, no, no, it's been stolen. I, I think it's worth it. 
And to me, that was just, okay, we, you know, we disagree in assessment of risk. And that's mm-hmm. the end of it. But he's a finance professor. Now, if you work in finance, risk is what you learn to think about. Finance is about balancing risk, time, and compensation. Mm-hmm. Right? You think about like basic stocks and bonds. It's about, oh, you know, stocks earn more because they're more risk. And of course, when you buy a bond, a short-term bond pays less than a long-term bond because you're holding money for less time. Mm-hmm. These are some of the fundamental units of how finance people think. So he instantly looked at this and said, Mark is mispricing risk. He knew how to arbitrage it. He said, okay, I'm going to sell you insurance. I think you're wasting time. No one's going to steal this car. So you give me $50 a year. You don't lock your doors. You don't fund the clubs. I'm saving you 30 seconds a day. And you pay me $50 for this time savings. If I'm right, I made $50. If you're right, Mark, the car gets stolen. Okay, I'll pay you the $1,000. He saw this difference and instantly knew how to arbitrage it. I never would have thought that way. But what I realized, having spent a year working with a couple finance professors, this is how they think. And I learned to think that way. As we developed the class, I learned to think in that mindset. When I work with accountants, they think differently. When I work with lawyers, when I work with marketing people, HR people, we all have different mindsets. Hmm. It comes from our academic training. It comes from our fields of work. It comes from just innate Uh, mental uh, preferences that we have. And so one very useful skill is to begin to recognize the different models we have and the different language that we have and how we think about this. If I were sitting down to interview with a bunch of engineers, I'm going to speak like an engineer and I'm going to talk about constraints and I'm going to talk about the engineering triangle, right? Cost time scope, how we trade off. I'm going to use Mm -hmm. engineering terms. If I'm going to speak with a bunch of people in finance, I will talk about risk reward. I will talk about compensation for time and risk. And I will use different language. I will use different mental models. Mm -hmm. All of us can benefit from learning some of these other mental models. Now, I'm giving specifics down to a discipline. You asked at a very broad level, which is that academics and industry, we start. It's almost like the the top of the hierarchy. (laughs) And certainly... In industry, we think about you have to deliver. It's adding customer value. It's making sure this project in the end actually goes somewhere and is cost effective for the company. In academia, we can spend five years doing a research project that goes nowhere. Once we're tenured, that's no longer quite so (laughs) critical. And we're okay doing that. We're okay saying, oh, you know, the three-year project is turning into a five-year project. That happens sometimes. Yeah. As long as we can get our funders or department head to believe in the value, they say, oh, okay. But in industry, that might not be acceptable. It may if you're in some fundamental research group, but for most organizations, no, you have to be delivering value and justifying the money being spent on your department. It's mm-hmm. getting that understanding, that, that shift to how do they think about from how we think about in academia. And the ways you can do this is by talking to people. Right? It's by having these conversations, whether they say, hey, I'm going to sell you insurance on your car, or just listening to what's the language that they're using. How are they thinking about, oh, I wouldn't have thought about that way. That's interesting. Why do you think about this way? And it's by having that diversity in our network, including people in industry, that we can be exposed to these ideas and ways of thinking. It's really interesting because, you know, the idea of uh, of going to talk with someone who either uh, you know is has the position that you you kind of be looking up to and and having an informational interview with the person it's it's something i've you know i've talked about on the podcast already a, a lot but you're you're going to another level here which is kind of l- this idea of learning the language it's it's a bit meta it's like we Talking with the per- one, one or two or three people, you and just tell me if I'm interpreting it right. If you see terms that are coming back, uh, you know, or or like you were saying, patterns of thinking that it, that happen in two conversations, you kind of have to take a mental note of that and say, okay, this is this is a commonality between these two people. It means it's probably something I need to take note of and maybe bring it out in an interview. Is this kind? Of, is this kind of what you're 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 saying? Yes. And whether it's in an interview or just in other engagement or things we read or podcasts we listen to, it's get to that meta level. 
And those of us from STEM recognize when, when you see one data point, you say, ah, you know, maybe it's an anomaly. When you see two or three, mm-hmm. right, start line fitting. Those of us in humanities, right, what do we do? It's pattern recognition. It's looking at, you know, the cycles of history or what are the themes in the literature. It's the same thing. Just apply these skills that you've developed, but now to our everyday conversations and look at these conversations with other people in the same way, in the same lens that you use to explore your field of research and say, I am here to learn. And of course, learning doesn't mean just getting, getting the knowledge. It's that what's that deeper understanding and model? You're trained to do it. Just apply it in other disciplines. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. Uh, and well, n- now maybe maybe talking about something different. We uh, we were just talking about you know how going into a new domain, going to into into a new space. There's this language. There's this culture that until you learn it and you're able to have a, a, a kind of a, a, a how can I say a. Uh, equal to equal, not, not exactly, but a more equal to equal conversation with someone from the domain, you will probably be lacking, and 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 you know you probably you'll hit a wall in a certain sense of not getting that position yet because you're not there yet. But there's another, there's another part of, especially when you come from academia, and I'm thinking again of myself, and 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 going to do something outside academia, which is the. How how you value your time, or let's say, at, on a, on a, looking at another way, how you don't really learn to value your time, and then when you, when you get this question of okay, how much do you want to make? The first time you get this question coming out of academia, it's you know, you can your your mind goes blank. You it's really it can be really hard and and scary because. Do you, what, how do you throw throw a number? And I know that now there's uh, there's uh, platforms out there online that you can go and already kind of see what what not, what the numbers look like. But you know this question of um, estimating. You talk. You were talking about this this guy who who put a value onto the security of your car, <laughs> right? Putting the value on our time and also being realistic as to what your first salary can be let's say out of uh, out of academia do you have uh, do you have anything to share about that because it, it people can be quite lost uh, in terms of those types of numbers coming out of uh, let's say a phd yeah, okay this is a uh, very broad and, and deep issue. we're talking about negotiations in general and salary negotiations specifically uh, first i'm going to encourage everyone negotiations are a skill that you should learn so imagine the following scenario. You get, you get a job outside of academia. You take your first industry job. Maybe you're 30 years old. Let's say they offer you $80,000 and you negotiate to $81,000. Not a, not a massive lift, right? We can all imagine doing that. Mm-hmm. If you do nothing else, you just sit in that job the rest of your career. You spend another 35 years working at this one job. Well, you just made $1,000 more for 35 years. You just made $35,000. One negotiation, tiny lift, Mm $35,000. Now imagine that you don't just sit in one job, right? You, of course, take other jobs. You get promotions. You negotiate those. Again, you negotiate for maybe just a few thousand more. These aren't heavy lifts. You're not some world-class negotiator. You're just doing a little better. You can literally add tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars to your lifetime income. Well worth it. But of course, we know negotiations aren't just job negotiations. In fact, we negotiate all the time. We negotiate with our colleagues about how we're divvying up work. Mm-hmm. We negotiate with suppliers and partners. We negotiate with our spouses, with our children to get them to eat their broccoli, <laughs> buying three more pieces of dessert. It's right? so true. <laughs> Negotiation happens all the time. Learning to negotiate pays huge dividends. And now I, I always use negotiation as an example. And I'll circle back to the question of uh, jobs specifically. Because we can see, okay, if I do better, ooh, $1,000 more and over time that adds up. All these other skills, if you learn to just speak a little better, if you learn to be a slightly better teammate, to lead a little more, it's not about being the world's best. It's about getting that, going from 80 to 81,000. It's getting that little lift. But if we can do that across these different skill sets, we become so much more effective and it's additive over time. And although it won't literally be another dollar in your pocket, it will lead to faster promotions, more opportunities at work, and it will ultimately deliver value 
hundreds of thousands of dollars, whether direct cash or in other value to us by enjoyment, by opportunities, by other things we like. So now when we go into a job negotiation, hopefully we've read a negotiation book, we've learned some negotiation skills. It begins with doing some research. And so you can go to online, you can find some salary information, the career office in your university. As undergrads, we went there and said, oh, I I need a job. What can you tell me? Mm -hmm. But even as grad students, even as a postdoc, they have some information. And sure, it might not be as detailed for postdocs as it is for undergrads, but still, they can probably give you some guidance. Likewise, you can reach out to people in the field, these alumni, these other people, and say, you know, I ask them, what do you make? But you can say, hey, what do you think for this type of job? Can you give me a sense of what I should expect? We know, of course, it's going to vary by a number of factors, right? If you're just some quant PhD going, leaving academia, going to Wall Street, the fact is they can find six other quant PhDs just like you if you don't take the job. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you are some, uh, some researcher and you're going to you know, a remote area, and, but there's a company there trying to hire you, they don't have a lot of researchers like you living in this area. There's not many PhDs in your field so you're more of a rare quantity. You get a little more leverage that way. So you're going to figure out kind of what your strengths and weaknesses are, where you have leverage, where the other side has leverage. And then you're going to go in and most importantly, do not negotiate salary, negotiate compensation. Salary mm-hmm. is one component. It is the most important component. Right? We do need that money to, to live on style. But we're trading off against a whole bunch of other things, including the nature of the role, including flexibility, including resources, including our our career growth. And what we learn in negotiations, you want a more complex negotiation. You want more issues. That gives us more opportunity to come up with solutions that are acceptable to both sides. So that's that's taking literally PhD level research (laughs) and collapsing it down to about three or four minutes. Uh, I do strongly recommend you invest in just learning some basic negotiation skills and your university probably has some negotiation classes or a club that you can join to practice this. Again, advice that, uh, and this is a discussion that has not happened yet on the podcast. So thank you <laughs> for, for mentioning negotiation. Do you have a book that you could, that you could also uh, maybe recommend? There are, there are a number of books. And of course, my book, The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You, does have a chapter on negotiation and perfect. on jobs. Other books, and I reference these in mine, and you can find them listed on the website of my book. Uh, Getting to Yes is a fantastic starting book from the Harvard Negotiation Project. Mm-hmm. It's a good, it's philosophical, it's an easy read, although it's not always very concrete, but it's a good starting book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say Bargaining for Advantage. That's by Richard Schell out of Wharton. That was, it's, it's a little, little thicker, a little more academic, but given this audience, this will not be a challenge. <laughs> and it's a lot more concrete in, okay, how do you approach it? How do you think about making that offer counteroffer? It's very tactically helpful. For a very advanced negotiation book, 3D Negotiations, uh, I forget the professor out of, out of Harvard Business School. That's a really great book. Um, so those are, those are a couple starring books. And there's a lot of other good books out there, some of which are listed on, um, on the website for my book. Very, very good. And uh, you, you mentioned uh, compensa- you know, negotiation compensation and not only the, the, the number and the, the salary. And uh, I do have, uh, I know from, from friends who work in HR and in companies who, who hire people who do programming, that today a lot of people are not asking uh, so much on the salary and asking for vacation time. And that's how they, they get their, their, the, right, uh, the right deal for them. And that it's happening more and more. People want a lot of flexibility, and uh, and you know that's a it's a currency in in itself in a way. <laughs> Absolutely, I think we'll see. I mean, certainly in, in my field of technology, uh, where people are caring about lifestyle and where we're more able to work remote. As we go back to the offices, we're going to see people saying, you know, it's not about getting an extra five thousand dollars a year. It's about can I work from home one or two days a week or work remote. Even even a month, uh, uh, one week a month, where I can just you know, go off and be on a beach and, mm-hmm. and code. So we're going to see people trade off because we all know, yes, dollars are important, but it's not the only thing that matters to us. And companies are recognizing, 
doing this trade-off allows for allows them to attract more talent and create more valuable compensation packages for employees. Mm, yeah, yeah, things are changing, and then this whole COVID thing has has brought a whole new set of challenges and and uh, is pushing the system in a certain way it's 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 interesting to watch and uh, and um and and all this yeah much more flexibility uh, solutions are arising these days for sure now i've asked a lot of questions about uh, you know the the moment where i had a lot of stress which was okay i'm not going to keep doing research what am I going to do? And and I, I, you know, I started seeing what's seeing around me, what other graduate students who were leaving were doing, and and that's I kind of network my my way that way. But um, you've talked just just before you you know you talked about this first salary you have, and then you negotiate a thousand dollars more, but then you're going to change jobs, and and you know we're kind of talking about it, uh, and I I see that or I feel that in your head. There's kind of um, a progression, and this it's made it makes me feel of it makes me think of a career uh, of of having a career plan, and and uh, I know that you find it it's important, uh, and I wonder though, does that career plan start at the first job, or is it also something that can start in those two years before you finish your PhD? Uh, can, you know, can you talk a little bit about this planning aspect, which I think. You know, I didn't do myself. I, you know, by at the last year of the PhD, I was like I, writing, and I needed to finish. And then, then I started scrambling in, through my network I, uh, with friends, family, etc., people I knew. But I know that if I had planned, you know, a little bit earlier on, things would have gone smoother, right? Uh, can you talk a little bit about why? why people should have a, a career plan, and I imagine work on it throughout life? Absolutely. So for anything we ever do that's more than some trivial activity, we need some type of planning. We need a project plan. Companies do annual budgets and strategy, and when we do projects at work, we say, okay, what's the plan? What are we trying to achieve? How are we going to do it? And so we know, even your, your thesis, you don't say, you know, day, day one of your PhD studies, okay, I'm going to go research this. I'll see you in five years. Hopefully I figure it out, right? What's the plan? How are you going to gather the research? How are you going to approach it? And then what's, your, you know, what's the process for refining it and figuring this stuff out? Of course, what you thought you would do, every, every PhD I know says, yeah, what I thought I did at the start of this it didn't quite work out that way. Yeah. <laughs> you uncover new things along the way and you adjust your plan. And that's true for us in our career plans. So the earlier you begin, the better. And maybe you start two, three years before you finish your PhD and maybe it doesn't change much. Maybe it does as you talk to people and explore more. I certainly know plenty of people who as they finish their PhDs start to say, I am so tired of my field. I am <laughs> done with it. That could happen to you. Even once you're out, so let's, let's pretend it does stay static from when you start to when you, you first get your PhD or finish the postdoc, and now you move into a position, faculty position or industry position. At that point, now the rubber meets the road. Mm. You're going to start executing on it and saying, yeah, I'm moving towards this longer-term goal. I'm developing these skills. But along the way, you may discover, I want to change where I'm going. Or I think I've developed these skills to a sufficient level, time to switch to a different skill, or this is more complex than I thought, so I want to I change up. And I really thought I was just going to be a coder and want to be a really good <laughs> programmer for a number of years until I realized, oh, I'm more interested in these other types of problems. So it's fine for that to happen. The mistake is to say, you know what, it's never going to work out as I planned, so I'm not even going to bother with a plan, right? That is asking for disaster. Having a plan, it doesn't guarantee success, but greatly increases the odds of success. And the key is your plan is not fixed. At least once a year, and I talk about other timing that you can do in the book, but at least once a year, sit down and reflect and say, okay, is this still where I want to go? How far have I progressed? Do I need to do a little course correction? Maybe just a little tweak, maybe just a little you know, pivot slightly, or maybe I need to do a, a hard right turn and go on a new path. Totally up to you. Mm -hmm. And it, one of the things that uh, that uh, people have I've crossed paths with uh, have felt is even if they have uh, this plan or this dream job, let's say, often 
when you're coming uh, from from a different field, and let's say again, because we're on Papa PhD, you're coming from academia, going into industry. Often, people who you will be talking uh, to within an interview, they they will they can be surprised that you're there because you're a PhD. So you have a PhD, and this why are you here? And then you'll have to persuade them of your interest in the position. Uh, but maybe also you won't have access to how can i say this imagine that the career is a, a, a tall building you know you won't be able to uh to start at the 10th floor you'll start you know they'll make you start at the 5th floor is this is this okay can this be part of of, of the of the journey and and you know is it okay to accept it and then give yourself a chance to prove yourself once you're within the organization and then go to the 10th floor and then and then resume the plan because i've seen people suffer in companies where they day to day they feel like they're uh, they're the odd the, you know they they're they're kind of uh, the odd one out uh, and and they have to kind of prove or yeah prove every day that they deserve to be there or or that it's not weird that they're there the answer is very much it depends. And we've seen this happen. When I was in grad school, you typically went from grad school, you got your PhD, and then went on to a faculty position, mm-hmm. and hopefully it's tenure track. And sometime, I think it was around the 90s, they started adding in this, this extra floor, to use your analogy, <laughs> postdocs. And then okay. suddenly you didn't go right into the position. You had to do a postdoc or maybe even two. Mm-hmm. Certainly we know in some fields, right, certainly in STEM, postdocs are very common. We don't mm-hmm. see postdocs as much in humanities. So it depends a little on the field. It might even depend on the university. Major universities, they typically say, yep, we need to see some postdocs. Small ones, if you just want to go into teaching, they say, oh, yeah, that's fine. You don't, you don't need the postdoc. So it can vary, well, I'm giving university examples, it even varies by company. Mm-hmm. Certainly if you go into a large company, if you go into on the STEM side, let's say Microsoft, right? They hire lots of PhDs, lots of technical people. They know how to incorporate them. Mm-hmm. Likewise, if you have a humanities PhD and you go into, let's say McKinsey or some consulting company, they're very used to hiring PhDs. They know what to do with you. They know how you fit in. They understand the value you add. If, on the other hand, you go into some small company and you're the only PhD, the first PhD in there, or one of a few, it might not be as clear how you fit. Now, this is a blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is true not just for this example. In general, when you have well-defined roles, some people like that. They like that clear path and they say, okay, I understand where I fit. I know what I have to do. And if I do X, Y, Z, I move up. I get to that next floor. If you like that structure and you go into these other companies, it might not be as obvious. On the other hand, it's not obvious to them to say, you belong over here. You fit clearly on this floor. So you can kind of talk to people on all these different floors. I hope we're not torturing the analogy too much. (laughs) You can move up and down. You might not be residing on the floor, but you can go up and down and interact with people and add value, and you can explore and create your own role. You can define it because no one else knows what the role should be. Mm -hmm. So it's really up to you and in your discussions. And even as you talk about compensation, right, it's not just, well, this company pays more, but I'm going, they're going to start me on floor five. I want to start on floor seven. So even though it's, you know, same salary or better salary, but floor five, I'd rather be here on floor seven. It's a more interesting opportunity. And that's what you're going to have to trade off. Yeah, I I agree, and I've met someone who told me exactly that she she's in this big uh, CRO company, you know, regulatory uh, medical regulatory um, uh, writing company, but and she has this very you know important position, let's say for her age uh, even, and and she said the way that it happened for me was I I started in a small company and they let me try everything, they let me learn all the skills. Because we, it was small, it was kind of almost a family-sized company, and so yeah, there's there's opportunity there. But th- what I've I'm thinking of this person, and I actually felt bad for her thinking if there was so much resistance for you to to come in as a PhD, maybe you should have should have said 
no because being in a being in a company where every day you need to prove yourself after having done a phd i, I don't know i and i i i know you you don't you can't you don't know exactly what i'm talking about but i i think when you're having a conversation and if you're feeling that there's a lot of resistance, you know, maybe think, okay, this is not the place for me, or maybe it's not yet. Maybe in, in five years it will be, but maybe right now I should look for somewhere else. Because if you're putting yourself in a position of suffering day to day in the, in this new in this new position coming out of the PhD, you might leave you marked and um, and hurt. Certainly, you don't want to go into a place where your boss says, "Yeah, I don't think you should be here." Right? That's never a great start. But depending on, first, just what your own preferences are, I like challenges. I don't want the, here's your office, sit here and do, do what you're told. I want a place where I do have to prove myself in some way, even if it's just to myself, where it's not always clear what I'm supposed to do, what the answers are, and I have to find ways to deliver value. That I happen to enjoy. And so depending on where you are on the spectrum from, I just want people to you know, hand me a problem and I'll get back to you when I'm done versus I'm going to go figure out what the problems are. You may like one versus another. To the more concrete statement that you're talking about where a company feels like, ah, why, why are we hiring this person? Well, someone there clearly wanted you, right? Someone said, I think you are useful. And depending on who that person is, they, they're certainly a supporter. There's this concept of um, a rabbi not a clergyman, but someone who's have kind of senior in an organization who looks out for you. Mm-hmm. And it, maybe your boss, it's usually someone more senior, right? So if say the head of, head of marketing says, look, we really need someone with a background in anthropology because I want to understand our customers and how they engage with our product. So it says director of marketing, go find someone with a PhD. And the director of marketing says, ah, I'm, I'm not convinced. But the mm-hmm. chief market officer says, well, I am. Go find this person, hire, hire her. Okay, so now you're in, and the, the director of marketing, not necessarily your biggest fan, the chief marketing officer is. So what you want to do is make sure you understand what the chief marketing officer is expecting, then figure out how what you do can make the director of marketing succeed in his goals, mm-hmm. right, to align that and be, be helpful to your, your boss. And if you can do that and turn this person around, now you have two people who are very excited to have you there and, and to have resources. But again, if, you, if the director is a total jerk and just says, look, I hired you because I have to <laughs> make your life a living hell and prove that we don't need you, not, not a great place to be. So yeah. it, it's a end situation. Yeah, no, it, it's it's super interesting, this, this idea of having someone that champions you. And uh, it's it's a very interesting point. And it, it shows that, You've seen a lot of things. <laughs> uh, Mark, we're getting to the end part of the of the interview, but there's there's one last thing from your book that I wanted to talk about, uh, which is this idea. And, you know, you've talked about uh, expanding your network, you know, having conversations and and, you know, enriching your uh, your 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 culture, your mindset in terms of of. Uh, learning new uh, new languages etc for from new domains but one of the things that a buzzword that you hear a lot today and uh, you know and and I think young people have get this quite easily it's the idea of creating and promoting your own personal brand and i i know you mentioned it in the book and i know it, it's not a really, really a segue from what what we just talked but i i really think that and we've talked about linkedin and you know there there is some personal branding that that you can work on on a, on a platform like linkedin but in your experience and um and even with the students in the program you know in the in the mit programs you may have had have some examples to share or or some advice some common advice that you that you that you usually give what can you say about this what what's the importance today of having a good presence uh, let's say prof- professionally online and uh, and how what are simple steps to start working towards having developing this good personal brand it's about getting getting your name out there right figure out what you want to be known for be very clear you're not getting known for something that 
doesn't align to your goals or doesn't help you or maybe even hurt you to mm -hmm. figure out, okay, I want to be known as an expert in this field. I want to be known as someone, maybe not the deep expert, but um, I can communicate well. I think of like Carl Sagan, mm -hmm. right? Fantastic physicist, but really what he's known, at least in the public, it wasn't his research. He was known as a, a person who could communicate science and get people inspired in science, mm -hmm. right? And Neil deGrasse Tyson inherited that, that mantle, right? And that's, I don't know if he was a good researcher or not, but he was certainly good and known for this, this other uh, skill set. So understand, okay, what is it you want to be known for? And maybe you're in, in some specialist, some subspecialty. Now, how do you get that content out there? And yes, you have a PhD. Okay, that certainly gives you some credibility. You mm -hmm. clearly understand this field, this sub area to some degree. But how do you make sure you are known for that, particularly outside of academic circles? Now, I'll mention first within academic circles, a common mistake people make is they say, okay, well, I've done the research and hopefully it gets around. In the book, A PhD is Not Enough, which is a fantastic book and every PhD should read this. Uh, one of the things the author talks about is make sure as you finish your PhD, your thesis advisor or people on your committee go out and socialize what you're doing. They promote, hey, this is my student. Look at what she did. Look at this great research. I want to make sure people are aware of it. Because we all know there's some great research out there. We don't have time to read it all. Of course. And, you know, some things just they're not getting the citations. There's even research showing like the um, almost network effects or like uh, virtuous and vicious cycles of getting mm. uh, cited helps get you cited more. So make sure you get your, your content socialized. It's not just about having good content, making sure it's known out there. In industry, we can do this by certainly having public profiles. It might be LinkedIn. It might be on other, other social media. It might be tweeting about it, if that's mm -hmm. what you want to do. I have friends with PhDs, and they like to tweet about AI research, and that's their okay. thing. However you choose to do it, make sure you know what your brand is and put out content that shows you are an expert and have people get to know you as an expert in that field. Okay. Then that, that makes total sense. And I do see a lot of people and researchers and, 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 and young researchers, uh, you know, research, uh, graduate researchers uh, that are, like you say, on Twitter posting the, I don't know, the latest uh, article that was published or figures. And no, it, it's, it totally makes sense. But from what I hear, the important thing is to have kind of a vector. Don't, don't do it uh, willy nilly, have, have an idea, uh, an image, uh, yeah, an image that you want to, uh, Uh, to put out there, but that um, that has a kind of a line that has a uh, yeah that tells one story. If you post a lot about, let's say, Roman history, this is your area, and you like tweeting about, so you tweet about the latest books, maybe even TV shows, certainly research papers. Where you're tweeting about that, okay, you're well defined. If, on the other hand, you're tweeting about Roman history. And every fourth tweet is also what your cat did today. Oh, and you also like talking about bacon because you're into bacon. And okay, well, I'm, I'm interested in this Roman history stuff, but now that's one out of every five tweets. There's a lot of noise. So what you want to do is say, okay, my Twitter account is just about Roman history. Uh, my Facebook account, that's where you can also see pictures of my cat and bacon, whatever. And so I'm just going to use Twitter for this one vector, as you say. That doesn't mean you can't ever say like, hey, happy that, you know, Biden won the election. Congratulations. <laughs> you know, those get thrown in from time to time. But try to stay on message. Build that brand. Okay. Mark, there is so much more in your book. Uh, but we're getting really getting to the end of the interview. Where can people find your, your book? Where can people find you also if they want to ask you questions directly? Uh, and... Um, Yeah, where where are you on the on the social media that people can follow you and interact with you? You can go to thecareertoolkitbook.com. That's my website. From there, you can find the contact page to reach out to me. You can see the uh, social media accounts I have to follow me. Mm -hmm. You can find out more about the book, including where to buy it. There's also a number of free downloads on the resources page and links to other resources, including many of the books you mentioned here. Okay. Many other books I mentioned in my book or they've just found useful along the way. There's also a free app. And so you can find links to both the Apple store and the Android store. 
And what the app does, I know when I read a book like this, I go, okay, this is really helpful. And then I forget it. Mm-hmm. And then a month later, because I'm on to the next book and I've got other things to worry about. So what the app does, it does a passive reminder. We all know spaced repetition works. We used to make mm-hmm. flashcards to study, you know, our periodic table or whatever yeah. you were doing. <laughs> dates in uh, the Roman Empire. So instead of flashcards, because no one wants to do flashcards for a book, you download the app and it simply each day pops up a reminder, one of the tips from the book. And so you look, you see the pop-up, swipe it away. Or if you're about to say, go into an interview, you can open the app and then quickly go through all the interview tips to kind of do a quick, uh, you know, crib sheet refresher course right before the activity. That is very cool. First time I see that. And yeah, I just want to note, this is a toolkit. This, the, you know, and the, the, the app is kind of really shows that it shows that you really thought about this book in a way of, uh, yeah, in a way that can help people do, uh, take actions. Uh, based on specific questions so it is it, the name is the career toolkit and i think that's for a reason <laughs> uh, mark uh, we're at the end of the interview you know people are now a lot of us uh, locked down to different degrees uh, i don't know if you have uh, you know in these last few months interactions with with uh, with students or not but uh, i i'm i just wonder uh, whether you'd have a word um, of of support and maybe also of advice of what can they do in this situation of being at home that can be work towards either their personal brand or their networking. You know, what, how can being stuck at home have something positive in, in this in this career in this question of careers? Sure. One thing we didn't have a chance to get to is a great way to develop these skills is to do so in a group. We've typically learned the fundamentals by, on our own, just say, okay, I'm going to get knowledge, right? My physics classes were sitting there as the professor scribbled equations on the board, and I'd frantically copy them down mm-hmm. and hopefully understood what was going on. And that's great for knowledge transfer. These skills are not simply knowledge. There's no formula for networking. There's no algorithm for leadership. And so we want to learn by getting exposed to different people having different conversations. While we are at home, and especially needing some type of social interaction, form these groups. Think of them like reading groups that you've probably done with your, with your PhD groups, with your departments. Mm-hmm. Think of reading groups, but focus not around your discipline, but around these skills. And so bring in people from different departments, even people, your friends who are in different universities, and say, we're going to form this reading group, and this week we're going to talk about networking. And next month, we're going to talk about leadership. And Mm -hmm. we're going to take some content. It could be a book. It could be a podcast. It could be an article. We're going to read it, and we're going to discuss it. And we're going to get these different views. And this is going to do a few things. It's going to get you different perspectives. It's going to emphasize these skills. But it's also going to build your network. Because especially if you say, like, if you and I were going to build this group, I'm going to say, get two friends of yours. I'm going to get two friends of mine. Mm -hmm. We have other people we're meeting and building relationships with. And if you want to know how to do this on the website, on the resources page, you can download a guide. Here's how to do it. I have timelines and schedules set up for my book if you want to use that. Or you can use any of the other books we mentioned and use that as the content and do these groups. So don't use this time to just say, well, I'm stuck at home. Use this time to say, I can still engage and reach out with other people and develop these skills and build my network at the same time. I love it, Mark. Uh, This has been a pleasure. This is great advice. I, I might even, <laughs> I think I'm going to use it for myself. <laughs> I'm going to steal the idea because um, it's it's fairly simple. Now everyone has Zoom or, you know, some other sort of, of uh, software to meet, uh, to, to Google Meet or whatever. It's a great, great piece of advice. Mark, uh, thank you so much for having taken the time to come here on Papa PhD. Uh, I, I'm really inspired by how much work you've put into, into the system and into the career toolkit. Uh, and uh, I think the listeners are going to have a lot of take-home messages and hopefully they will also uh, be able to uh, to uh, act upon it and, and take some of these tools and use them in their day-to-day. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure being here and I wish everyone success in their careers in academia or industry. Perfect. Thanks a lot. Thank you for the privilege of spending this hour with us. I hope some of the nuggets Mark shared resonated with you 
and that you'll start working on your career readiness today. Remember, you can find links to Mark's social media and to his book, The Career Toolkit, in the show notes at papaphd.com forward slash 113. And if the Papa PhD interviews have helped you in any way in finding your career path, you can always show your support on buymeacoffee.com or on Patreon. It will be really appreciated. If you don't do yet, follow Papa PhD on social media, on Twitter and on Instagram. It's at Papa PhD Podcast. Uh, also, if you like YouTube, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. We just crossed 200 and uh, it'd be great to have you in the group too. So thank you. And see you next week for another episode of Papa PhD.